From NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. I told EPA that I am so frustrated with them that I'm on the verge of inviting them to leave the state of Idaho. That's Idaho Governor Dirk Kempthorne, the likely new head of the EPA. While some say he's not a friend of the environment, others commend his tenure as a U.S. Senator and predict easy confirmation. I think in both the ESA and the Safe Drinking Water Act legislation, he again demonstrated his consensus-building skills. And you'd think a TV mob boss who sees a shrink to cure his panic attack should look to his violent past. Forget about it. Tony Soprano may be mean, but he should be green. Tony may be suffering from... Uh, alienation and distress tied to the degraded state of the natural world in which he lives. Shrinking Tony and more on Living on Earth this week, right after this. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and HeritageAfrica.com. Welcome to Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The name of Idaho Governor Dirk Kempthorne is now first on the list of candidates to run the Environmental Protection Agency when Christy Todd Whitman steps down at the end of the month. Governor Kempthorne is a Republican and a former United States senator who's been at odds with the EPA in his own state and favors greater local control over regulation. From member station KBSX in Boise, Idaho, Jill Hoyt reports there's a good chance Governor Kempthorne would get Senate approval to be the next top Enviro cop. If Idaho Governor Dirk Kimthorne becomes chief of the Environmental Protection Agency, he'll lead a body that he spent years fighting in Idaho. As part of a massive cleanup of metal mining waste, the EPA wanted to name Lake Coeur d'Alene a Superfund site. Kimthorne and many Idahoans thought the agency was wasting money, and they feared the label Superfund would hurt tourism and property values. I told EPA that I am so frustrated with them that I'm on the verge of inviting them to leave the state of Idaho. In a sense, he succeeded. The Coeur d'Alene site is now the first attempt in the nation to conduct a federal Superfund project through a state-chartered commission. But Idaho has little money to clean up the site, and the new commission has been criticized for having little power to enforce. It's an example of Kempthorne's long-time commitment to local control and local standards, even if, for example, those standards allow higher levels of lead, cadmium, and zinc in Idaho's south fork of the Coeur d'Alene River. Bill Sedevey, director of Idaho Rivers United, is wary of Kempthorne as EPA chief. Certainly, Governor Kempthorne is no friend of the environment. Sedevi says an office of species conservation that Kempthorne created works to keep endangered wildlife off the endangered species list. The creation of that agency really decimated an outstanding Idaho uh, Department of Fish and Game, which had been a leader in the West in such issues as salmon recovery and uh, habitat restoration. But John Sandoval, chief of staff at the Idaho Department of Environmental Quality, applauds Kim Thorne's environmental record in the U.S. Senate and Idaho. He is probably the best advocate for environmental protection in Idaho. He is sometimes referred to as being pro-industry and pro-business, and, and, and maybe there's some truth to that, but I think that he is also 
pro-protection of public health and the environment. While in the Senate, Kim Thorne championed amendments to the Safe Drinking Water Act that helped rural areas improve their drinking water while minimizing the financial burden. He pushed through the Unfunded Mandates Reform Act, which requires agencies to make public the financial costs of proposed regulation. He worked with Democrats to reform the Endangered Species Act to give property owners greater regulatory certainty in exchange for species protection. That bill wasn't successful, says Boise State political scientist Jim Weatherby, but the collaboration was. I think in both the ESA and the Safe Drinking Water Act legislation, he again demonstrated his consensus-building skills. Many of Kim Thorne's former colleagues in the U.S. Senate hold him in high regard. Rhode Island Senator Lincoln Chafee, who serves on the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee, says he would support the Idaho governor to head the EPA. Uh, there's a great deal of respect and affection uh, for him, and uh, I, I think that he's held in high esteem here. Lawmakers, political scientists, and environmentalists agree that one major challenge facing the next EPA administrator is how to assert control. Boise State political scientist John Freemuth. The biggest concern I would have if I was Dirk Kempthorne going in is whether I could get carte blanche from the White House to lead EPA without political interference from White House operatives and staff. Several observers, Democrat and Republican, noted that these days the environmental shots are being called from the White House, not the EPA. For Living on Earth, I'm Jill Hoyt in Boise, Idaho. J. Stephen Griles, the Deputy Secretary of the Interior, is under investigation by his own department's Inspector General over questions of conflict of interest. Some environmental and government watchdog groups are also asking the Attorney General to appoint a special counsel to investigate Mr. Griles. Steve Griles was a mining regulator in the Reagan administration before he became a lobbyist for the oil, gas, and coal industries. Democratic Senator Joseph Lieberman has led the official criticism of Mr. Griles, alleging that promises made during his confirmation hearings to keep an arm's length from his former clients have not been kept. For example, Mr. Griles' datebook shows he met a former client in the gas industry a day before he sent a memo to EPA officials asking them to speed up the review process on coal bed methane drilling in Wyoming's Powder River Basin. Mike Sorahan is a reporter with the Denver Post-Washington Bureau, and he's been covering the story. Mike, why does Mr. Griles have so many critics right now? Basically, they think that he's tilting the playing field toward industry. Uh, and they see that uh, because he used to be uh, an industry lobbyist. And those fears uh, and concerns are uh, confirmed in his critics' mind when they see that he continues to meet with many of his old clients uh, from the you know, coal, oil, and gas industries. Well, people work, uh, have jobs, then do government service. Um, are they expected to give up all of their friends, all of their contacts for that service? Well, I think one of the key things is here that they are, uh, he has a continuing financial tie. And for $284,000 a year, which is what his old firm is paying him, critics and others would maintain that some additional caution is necessary and you know maybe you need to find somebody else to go to lunch with. Tell me about the... Uh, money that he's earning from his firm. Well, why and how is this coming to him? Well, uh, he came to this firm, National Environmental Strategies, and uh, apparently uh, helped them build up their client base. 
And uh, at the by, by the time he left, he had been making more than half a million dollars a year. When he left, his firm agreed to buy out that interest at, at what they said was book value. Uh, they say that book value is $1.1 million. Whether we, we don't know exactly why, whether it's for tax reasons or just the company can't take a $1.1 million hit all at once, uh, they're paying that out over four years. He has agreed to stay away from that firm's clients for four years, and then I believe federal law requires an additional two years after that. Has he been meeting with these clients in in, in contradiction to what he said during his uh, confirmation hearings? Yes, he has been meeting with those clients. It's up to someone else to decide whether he's in contradiction of those uh, pledges. But he has been meeting with clients fairly soon after taking office. He was in a conference call with the head of his old lobbying firm, who's also a close friend, Mark Himmelstein. The folks at the department have explained to me that was just four golfing buddies who were busy, and the only way they could uh, have their friendly conversation was to uh, have a conference call scheduled during the day. He has met a couple times with folks from the National Mining Association. That is a former client who has several high-profile issues before the government, uh, not the least of which is mountaintop removal mining in West Virginia. Mr. Griles was a uh, member of the Clear Skies Task Force, which was the uh, group of uh, high-level administration officials who were charged with coming up with an air pollution strategy for the Bush administration. During that time, he set in on a meeting uh, with 13 chief executives from his, another old client, the Edison Electric Institute. Um, and then when you get to the memo in the Powder River Basin, the day before he sent that memo, he had met with Western Gas Resources, uh, which was a former client and uh, one, of the co- one of the companies in the consortium that was paying for uh, the environmental study to get drilling moving there. And then three days later, he was at a barbecue at uh, Mr. Himmelstein's house. He and uh, Mr. Himmelstein and uh, some of the other top Interior Department officials uh, in, in charge of land and uh, mining and oil and gas, uh, having a cookout at the home of the top lobbyists for those na- natural gas companies. Mike, Mark Fifley, who's the press secretary at the Department of Interior, uh, talked to us about some of these issues. Uh, and he said that all of these meetings were cleared by the ethics office of the Department of Interior. He also points out that Mr. Griles has worked to eliminate some abuses of the resource extraction industry and that uh, the deputy secretary has been fully accessible to representatives of environmental groups uh, and that, frankly, these allegations uh, and, and what they would say is innuendo is part of, frank, partisan politics. It's just partisan politics. As a reporter, Mike, what do you see going on? You know, a lot of the things that you just mentioned are true. He, from what I can tell, did work to uh, eliminate some of the, uh, you know, bad practices by bad actors, uh, you know, fly-by-night operators in especially the coal industry. I think what you'll find Mr. Grau's critics say is that he's kind of tilting the playing field in favor of the mainstream energy companies, which has its own detrimental effects. And, uh, you know, certainly the people who are Mr. Grau's critics here, these are people who didn't like Mr. Grau's to begin with, but perhaps he's given them some fuel on the fire by quite openly meeting with some of his old clients. 
Mike Sorahan is a reporter at the Denver Post-Washington Bureau. Thanks for taking this time with me today. Thanks for having me. Just ahead, the Nature Conservancy gives itself a scrubbing. First, this environmental health note from Diane Toomey. For the first time, researchers have found a possible link between exposure to crop pesticides and low sperm counts in the general population. Researchers at the University of Missouri looked at two groups of men, one from Minneapolis and another from agricultural areas of Missouri. The men didn't have any known risk factors for reduced sperm counts, such as advanced age or smoking. Researchers then analyzed the men's sperm as well as the pesticide levels in their urine. In general, the men in Minneapolis showed very little exposure to pesticides, so low sperm counts in some of those people couldn't be attributed to the chemicals. But in Missouri, researchers found higher levels of pesticide exposure, and they found that men with elevated levels of three pesticides in particular were significantly more likely to have a low sperm count and poor sperm quality. For instance, Missouri men with the highest levels of the common weed killer alichlor were 30 times more likely to have lower sperm counts and less vigorous sperm. Since these men didn't work in the pesticide industry or on farms, researchers say they were most likely exposed through drinking water. Researchers caution, although this is a preliminary indication that pesticides might be affecting sperm, this was a small study with just 86 men enrolled. And more confirmation work will be needed. For instance, researchers will need to examine the effects of pesticide exposure at various stages of sperm development by testing for it weeks prior to sperm collection. That's this week's Health Note. I'm Diane Toomey. And you're listening to Living on Earth. Welcome back to Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. This week in 1820, the story goes, Colonel Robert Gibbon Johnson climbed the steps of the Salem, New Jersey County Courthouse before an expectant crowd as a band played a dirge. Brandishing a bushel basket filled with a bright red fruit, he declared, The time will come when this luscious scarlet apple will form the foundation of a great garden industry. And then, to the gaps of onlookers, the colonel bit off a huge chunk of the wolf's peach, known today as the tomato. This event is celebrated in reenactment each year in Salem City. There's just one thing. It didn't really happen. It's just a tall tale loosely based on the science of the time. The Aztecs domesticated tomatoes, but European botanists suspected the New World crop was poisonous because it comes from the same plant family as toxic belladonna and deadly nightshade. They weren't completely wrong. Tomato leaves do contain the neurotransmitter solanine, which can cause vomiting, convulsions, and death. After all, Hollywood warned us about the attack of the killer tomatoes. Still, the tomato has grown in popularity, and good thing. What would modern life be without pizza, or rather I should say the tomato pie? And what would scrambled eggs be without ketchup from the tomato? Or if you prefer, the tomato. And for this week, that's the Living on Earth Almanac. The nation's wealthiest conservation organization is making significant changes in the way it does business. 
The Nature Conservancy temporarily suspended many of its activities earlier this month after an investigative series in the Washington Post raised questions about loans to employees, tax-sheltered land deals with insiders, and oil and gas drilling on conservation land. Now its Board of Governors has come up with new standard operating procedures. Joining me to discuss the changes is Conservancy President Steve McCormick. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you very much, Steve. Let's uh, go down the list of changes that you made at the recent uh, board meeting of the Nature Conservancy, the the significant ones. Can you just uh, tick them off for me, please? Sure. The board established a policy that stops any purchase or sale of land to or from a member of our Board of Governors, a trustee, which is a volunteer advisor at our state level, and employees or their immediate families. Uh, It made sure that any charitable gifts associated with a uh, sale of land to a so-called conservation buyer, where we impose significant restrictions, is legally documented as part of the transaction. Uh, Third, we established that there will be no loans of any sort to employees, even to assist with relocation, which is what they were all used for. Fourth, uh, we won't initiate any new oil, gas drilling, or mining of hard rock minerals on preserves that we own. Uh, We've only done that twice in 52 years, but we thought nonetheless we should, for appearance's sake, uh, not do that again. And finally, that we would enlist a group of independent outside experts to help establish a standard of best practice of governance for a organization like the Conservancy that's highly decentralized and which has a culture of innovation through competent risk-taking. I want to talk to you uh, in particular about the Shelter Island transaction Mm -hmm. that attracted so much attention by the Washington Post. There was this parcel of land, I think it was about 10 acres or so, that someone associated with the Nature Conservancy at the end of the day was able to purchase for about a half a million dollars at the same time, make a substantial donation. I think perhaps it was a million and a half or $1.6 million to the Nature Conservancy in the form of a charitable donation and therefore tax deductible. At the same time, as I understand it, the property was appraised for that total, like $2.1 million. Now, to someone looking at this transaction, it looks like the Nature Conservancy got this person essentially a discount. What's your response? If someone makes a contribution to National Public Radio of $100 and you get a CD set worth $50, you're entitled to a contribution of $50. Absolutely. So in this case, we put the property on the open market. We weren't able to find anyone who was willing to buy it for $500,000 except this one couple. And they bought it for $500,000 and they could easily have said, that's the end of the deal. But they thought that the Conservancy is an organization they believe in, and they gave us a $1.6 million contribution, and they're entitled to do that because they weren't required to make that contribution whatsoever. They bought property worth $500,000 when no one else would do that. In the last two, well, say five years, we've done well over 5,000 different transactions. We've probably done in the order of 15 to 20 with people who have had this kind of, who's trustees. And 
in every case that I'm aware of, it's a trustee who has come to our help, not someone who has been given an inside opportunity. Nonetheless, because they are called trustees and their involvement on chapter boards, which are simply advisory boards, because that does leave an impression that they are an insider, we want to avoid even the hint of impropriety. Let me ask you about another thing that came out of the board meeting, and that was to, quote, not initiate new oil or gas drilling or mining of hard rock minerals on Nature Conservancy preserves unless required by existing contracts. What does that mean uh, in terms of continuing to drill as part of an existing contract uh, uh, on that project in Texas City, Texas, which uh, is home to the endangered Atwater's prairie chicken? We're looking into the whatever legal obligation we we may have. There are a number of other parties that have fractional interests in the uh, oil and gas rights, subservice oil and gas rights, and if we're under some contractual obligation, then we would be unable to do that without their concurrence. It seems that uh, the Nature Conservancy could have avoided a lot of bad press uh, had you made these internal changes before the Washington Post series came out. Why did you wait to make these changes now? The um, I, I will say that the Post series accelerated and intensified examination of of these kinds of practices. But as I say, what the Post didn't, I think, properly reveal is that we've been going through a number of changes. But inasmuch as the Post coverage implied that there are appearances of impropriety, it was appropriate for the board to address those concerns and reassure our members and our supporters and those who are loyal to the Conservancy that although they're legal, although all the activities are well within uh, accepted practices that we would sort of go to a higher standard and assure people that we are uh, mindful of perceptions of our work as well as the substance. Steve McCormick is president of the Nature Conservancy. Thanks for taking this time with me today. Thank you, Steve. For America, eagles are the symbol of freedom, courage, and strength. For Native Americans, eagles are a crucial element in religious ceremonies. For half a century, the federal government has struggled to protect eagles while fulfilling the Native American religious demand for eagle carcasses and feathers. Now the Zuni tribe of New Mexico has opened its own aviary, the nation's first tribally owned and operated eagle sanctuary. The goal is to supply feathers to tribal members and revive the ancient practice of eagle husbandry. Daniel Cracker reports. I'm standing inside a huge birdcage as long as a football field and two stories high. The walls and roof are wooden slats, allowing the high desert breeze to blow through. Across from me, perched comfortably on astroturf roosts, are eleven eagles. They stare at me with cold eyes and squawk at my intrusion. The majority of the ones on the lower perches are juvenile bald eagles. Pretty much all of the ones that are on the high perches are goldens. Nelson Luna is a wildlife technician for the Zuni Fish and Wildlife Service which oversees the new aviary and cares for its 21 eagles. Though his voice is understated, Luna's affection for his charges is clear as he talks about his job. He leads me past a small pen of golden eagles off the main cage or flyway. He's microphone shy. (laughs) They quiet as we pass, and we enter another room. In this second enclosure, we've got all of the mature bald eagles. I think this... Big female was from Tulsa, and it was it got hit by a vehicle eating roadkill in winter two years ago. 
But yeah, in order for them to be saved, uh, they had their wings amputated. And thus, they're deemed non-releasable, and that's the primary reasons why they're in this facility. If these birds could fly, federal law would require they be freed. But since they're injured, the law says they can go to zoos, educational centers, or somewhere like here, where eagles are considered sacred. Like many Indian people, Zuni religious leader Francis Leakey Jr. is reluctant to talk about their ancient ceremonies. But in talking to him, it's clear there is a huge religious demand for eagle feathers. There's two different times that we have to make prayer feather offerings. It's in the winter and in the summer, and most of the tribal members do that. And the other type of religious doings is through our cultural, through our religious dance purposes and all those night dances. We use a lot of prayer feathers. We use a lot of eagle feathers then. And there are some medicine and some other societies that use a lot of eagle feathers too. And that's just on the Zuni Reservation. There are more than 500 federally recognized tribes, and most use eagle feathers in ceremonies. The Zuni gather molted feathers here every day, but that doesn't come close to meeting even the local demand. Until the Zuni built their aviary, the only place Native Americans could legally get feathers was from a place called the National Eagle Repository in Denver. Bernadette Atencio is a supervisor there. We average about 1,000 eagles a year. Currently, uh, we have over 5,000 Native Americans who are on a waiting list to receive eagle feathers. Right now, with 5,000 people on the waiting list, the waiting period for a whole bird is three and a half years. Whole birds are prized for their full sets of tail and wing feathers, but loose feathers, like the Zuni aviary provides, are also in demand. The U.S. government thinks more tribally-run aviaries could help reduce the waiting time for feathers. And John Antonio, who works with the Fish and Wildlife Service as a tribal liaison, says it would be no trouble finding eagles to fill those sanctuaries. There's uh, quite a few birds. I was surprised uh, to find out, talking to the different rehabbers, there's a lot of birds that they get all the time, injured birds. A lot of times they'll, they'll call and say, hey, you have any other aviaries uh, ready to go because we can certainly help supply some birds. So they're excited because they now have an option rather than euthanize these eagles. They can provide them to the tribes. The afternoon has turned warm on Zuni. A few golden eagles take flight to cool themselves and stretch their wings. Eagles will soon also be flapping on Oklahoma's Cherokee Reservation, where construction is set to begin on the country's second tribally operated eagle sanctuary. The Cherokees have asked the Zuni tribe to borrow their design. But for the Zuni, the aviary is more than just a source of eagle feathers. It's a way of reconnecting with their ancient customs. Prior to federal laws protecting eagles, Zuni religious societies would rear their own eagles in village cages. It was a sacred practice. Edward Wamaitua of the Zuni Fish and Wildlife Department says that the tribe can now reclaim that tradition, even if it does mean putting up with federal oversight. It's a very uncomfortable feeling when, when you can't openly express our philosophies, our ideas, and our activities. But again, we're, we're trying to be, I guess, accommodating to a certain extent. Personally, I would say that we're going to play the game and that eventually it's going to be a win-win situation. So far, the Zuni have played the game well. 
John Antonio says they have gone above and beyond what's required in caring for a threatened species. They have plans to expand the main aviary and have two mini aviaries under construction. The new, smaller facilities are being built right in the communities. Religious societies will care for the birds just as they did hundreds of years ago. For Living on Earth, I'm Daniel Crocker on the Zuni Reservation. And you're listening to NPR's Living on Earth. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the World Media Foundation. Major contributors include the Ford Foundation for reporting on U.S. environment and development issues, and the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation for coverage of Western issues. Support also comes from NPR member stations and Bob Williams and Meg Caldwell, honoring NPR's coverage of environmental and natural resource issues, and in support of the NPR Presidents Council. And Paul and Marsha Ginsburg in support of excellence in public radio. The first outbreak of the African disease monkeypox in the Western Hemisphere has been traced to infected prairie dogs in an Illinois pet shop. And it's believed the prairie dogs caught the disease from an African import that also lived at the pet store, a Gambian giant pouched rat. To find out more about this little-known creature, we called an expert. Joanne Randonitis is a keeper at the Hogel Zoo in Salt Lake City, where the giant rats are part of the education program. Hi, Joanne. Hi. I understand that the Hogel Zoo has not one but two Gambian rats. What are their names? They are named Gabby and Eureka. Joanne, i got to tell you, when my oldest son said that he wanted a pet rat a number of years ago, I was mm-hmm. privately horrified, but I went along uh-huh. with it. But, you know, the rat was actually quite a wonderful pet. Right. How about these, these, these Gambian rats? They do not make very good pets at all. They're very temperamental, and they're also very territorial. They're also rather large, so you need a lot of space to take care of them so that they'll have a good quality of life. What's large? A giant pouch rat can weigh almost three and a half pounds, and they can probably grow to be about a foot and a half long. That's a lot of rat. Mm-hmm, it sure is. And tell us about those pouches. What, what's that all about? In their cheeks, they have these big skin flaps that they use, and they'll go out in the wild and gather food and store it all in their pouches, then go back to their nests and unload it in a little food cache, and then they'll just sit there and eat that. What do you feed these these giant rats? Um, They get a whole selection of fruit and vegetables. Um, Gabby particularly likes grapes, and she'll just take grapes and keep shoving them in her pouches until she has a whole face full of grapes. I suppose, as you know, the Gambian rat has not been getting much uh, good press these days. Yes, uh, I've, I've been reading about that, too. <laughs> but you're the ambassador now for the Gambian mm-hmm. rat. Tell me, what do you like about this rodent? I, um, I really appreciate how intelligent they are. Um, I'm working on training with the rats um, to teach them to come to me and to target, to create. Their um, learning ability is just, they're very quick. They can be very vocal. Um, when they get excited or they feel threatened, they'll fill their cheek pouches with air and then they'll release the air, and it makes like a muffled sound. The rats in the morning, they will vocalize for me. They'll come and they'll squeak at me because they're familiar with me. So I think that we have a good working relationship. When you take these animals around to classrooms or to rest homes, how, how do people respond to these giant rats? I think first off, people can't get over how large they are. And all the people that are at the presentations are allowed to touch the rat um, in a controlled way, though. And um, I think then people, people can warm up to a, to a rat. Joanne Randonitis is on the animal care staff in the Docent Animal Facility at Utah's Hogel Zoo. Joanne, thanks for taking this time with us today. Great. Thank you very much.
Coming up, the opposite of fast food. First, this note on emerging science from Cynthia Graber. Some people like their coffee decaffeinated, but getting the buzz out of the beans is an expensive process. It can be done chemically by adding a solvent to soaking beans. The caffeine bonds to the solvent and is flushed away. But the downside is that the solvent becomes a waste disposal headache. One environmentally benign process uses carbon dioxide, and another uses water to get the jive out of Java. But coffee aficionados and roasters complain that the process leaves a bean that pales in comparison to its more robust caffeinated cousin. So scientists are developing a genetically modified plant that represses the enzyme that helps create caffeine in the first place. In one experiment, 35 transgenic seedlings were cultivated and had between 50 and 70 percent less caffeine than their wild cousin. If the process can be replicated in the field, it could eliminate the need for costly and some say tasteless caffeine removal systems. But critics worry that the caffeine protects coffee plants from insects and herbivores and from harmful fungi. Some of these fungi produce toxins that can harm human health. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Cynthia Graber. And you're listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood, and coming up, the greening of Tony Soprano. But first, the twisted sinews of the acacia trees reach up and flatten themselves against a clear African sky. Down below, a troop of baboons, tails arched like flags, patrol the cops of trees and then slowly move out across the savanna. Huge, confident males swivel their long, naked muzzles in my direction. These are not cuddly monkeys. My guide tells me that even the leopards are reluctant to take on an adult male baboon. Brains help along with the brawn. Baboons walk on all fours, but this largest of all monkeys is a not too distant cousin of ours. Behind bars at the zoo, the baboon has such little grandeur. But in the wild, this troop acts with purpose and dignity. And I'm reminded of the evolution of my own species. Baboons can make us feel uncomfortable because they look and sometimes act in ways that threaten the logic of our self-appointed exalted status. But on this day, the smart, knowing way they move through this territory fills me with humility. There are some things I know well, but little of my knowledge involves the land the way these creatures know it. I do know that by coming here, I am somehow wiser. You too can learn the wisdom of the African wilds if you win our ultimate African safari. The end of June is the deadline to take a chance to have HeritageAfrica.com bring you to some of Africa's wildest places, such as Kruger and the Serengeti. To enter the contest, go to LivingOnEarth.org. That's LivingOnEarth.org for a chance for the trip of a lifetime. McDonald's may be the best-known purveyor of fast food, and it's unwittingly responsible for spawning what's known as the slow food movement. Slow food is a worldwide association that promotes a return to food that's unprocessed, grown locally, and eaten at leisure with family and friends. It's all part of a trend that's made natural foods the fastest-growing segment of the industry. Reporter Pippin Ross recently visited a slow food event held in Brooklyn, New York, and has this report. Okay, so it's kind of a no-brainer that the opposite of fast food would be slow. But just what does that mean, and why are there seventy thousand dues-paying slow food members in forty-five countries? 
Patrick Martins, the U.S. director of Slow Food, sits on the back of a tractor-trailer truck in a gritty industrial neighborhood in Brooklyn. Slow Food was founded very much on the pleasure component. I saw this great bumper sticker when I was in Iowa that says, if I am what I eat, then I'm fast, cheap, and easy. And uh, that's one of the things that we're trying to change, too, is that there won't be as many people who, uh, who live that bumper sticker. Slow Food began as a protest to a plan in 1986 to build a McDonald's in Rome. Italian activists responded to what they saw as the globalization of fast food. Their strategy was to rally people to reject Big Macs in favor of food that's local and naturally raised, and in so doing, support small farms. The operative word is indeed slow in this Brooklyn parking lot, where three 120-pound pigs are splayed across giant charcoal grills to roast all night long in anticipation of tomorrow's third annual slow food barbecue. We'll show you these over here because they haven't been cooking long. Bill Eason, a professional pig cooker, was recruited from North Carolina to grill the pigs. He says there's nothing new about slow food. Because unbeknown to me until I became, you know, familiarized with it and a part of it, that's what I was doing. I was cooking slow food, low and slow, not fast. So, you know, with that attitude, the slow food movement suits my, my way of thinking. The pigs, with gentle blue eyes and lean, muscular bodies, came all the way from Iowa. They were handpicked for this event by farmer Paul Willis because, he says, they were raised like pigs ought to be. Which means they're, if you will, free-range or outdoor-raised. And uh, we don't use antibiotics, and we try to focus on the, you know, the natural inclinations of a pig and how a pig likes to live. And so they, you know, they have bedding and they, they run out in pasture and this type of thing. That back-to-basics upbringing is both sanctioned by the Animal Welfare Institute and central to the slow food ethos as are things rooted in tradition, like the copious amounts of beer that will flow during tomorrow's event. Brooklyn brewery manager Tom Grubb says microbrew recipes, some dating back to the ancient Egyptians that use whole grains and avoid preservatives, are a perfect fit with the slow food concept. A pure form of brewing, and you know, brewing for not so much for the masses anymore, but actually for those with, uh, with sensitive taste buds and those who actually know the difference between mass-produced something and not so mass-produced something and actually are searching for flavors. Flavor, tradition, unprocessed food, and the chance to sit with friends and meet new ones inspired about 400 people to pay 85 bucks a head to show up the following day. The menu? Ribs, pulled pork, lamb sausage, baked beans, cornbread, coleslaw, and pickles. In celebration and support of farmers and businesses, the slow food movement recognizes as purveyors of salt-of-the-earth food, a marriage that Steve Goldberg, the director of Whole Foods Catering, is loving as he unloads a truck full of coleslaw and cornbread. We started off as a small company, you know, with small stores, and it was all about nurturing relationships with small producers, whether it was, you know, small farmers, artists and cheesemakers. And uh, so for us, we've been doing this for a long time. And we love the fact that more and more and more and more people are getting involved in it. Inside the brewery are long rectangular wooden tables, chafing dishes piled with steaming food, 
a bluegrass band licks their musical chops in the corner, the scene evokes a church supper and a slow food buzzword, conviviality. Slow foodie, Doug Duda. Within the big tent of slow food, um, a lot of people who have political inclinations and environmental friendliness inclinations, but then there's a lot of people who just want to eat good. Case in point, Juan Sanchez, a recent convert to slow food whose head is just about buried in a plate of ribs and beans. Mm. It's really tender. It's really good. I always start with the ribs. The schedule of upcoming slow food events is as dense as it is international. This summer, New York slow food chapter will host seminars on, among other things, cooking grass-fed beef and traditions in pickling. Hagen, Germany will be the site of a cherry harvest festival. And in Chicago, numerous chefs will serve food in art galleries to underscore the notion that food is art. Thank you. For Living on Earth, I'm Pippin Ross in Brooklyn, New York. Just in case you don't recognize it, that's the theme from the hit HBO series, The Sopranos. Yesterday, we consider Tony Soprano and his extended dysfunctional family from the Jersey Burbs. Mob boss Tony is the program's central character, and one of the most talked about segments of this program is his psychotherapy with Dr. Jennifer Melfi. This isn't going to work. I can't talk about my personal life. Finish telling me about the day you collapsed. There's been much online chatter among real-life psychotherapists about these sessions, emails back and forth discussing what Dr. Melfi is doing wrong and why she hasn't been able to cure Tony of his frequent panic attacks despite four years and more than 50 episodes of therapy. For a second opinion, we turn to Jeremiah Creedon, a senior editor at Utney Magazine. His article, The Greening of Tony Soprano, appears in the current issue of Utney, and in it he explores a theory that Tony may be suffering from what eco-shrinks call ecological alienation. I went back to the very beginning and to the very first episode and the very first session between Dr. Melfi and Tony and tried to go from there and see what really might be bugging him. Uh Uh-huh. What did you see? Well, as I watched the episode, uh, Melfi asks Tony what's wrong, and uh, he explains how happy he was when wild creatures came to his pool and had their babies. A couple months before all this, these two wild ducks landed in my pool. It was amazing. They're from Canada or someplace, and it was mating season. They had some ducklings. They then proceeded to fly away, at which point Tony has his first panic attack that drops him like a a stone in his suburban backyard. He says that he was sad to see them go and then goes on to say, I was afraid I'm going to lose my family. And from that point on, Melfi begins exploring uh, everything that those ducks could symbolize. But 
I began to see that she really never took the ducks for what they were, that maybe ducks are just ducks, and that Tony was really sad to see them go. And that made me think that Tony may be suffering from uh, alienation and distress tied to the degraded state of the natural world in which he lives. Now, I'm looking at this article that you wrote for Otney, and in it you quote uh, psychologist Andy Fisher, uh, a book that... Uh, Fisher wrote entitled Radical Eco-Psychology. Let me, let me read to you the quote. I'm sure you'll remember it. Eco-psychology has emerged largely from a sense of loss, and one of its goals is simply to articulate such sorrow, which many people might feel today but have no way to express, a, quote, psychic numbing from the environmental damage of the world around us and from our disconnect with nature, close quotes. How do you see this being played out in the show? Well, I noticed watching through very closely that there's all sorts of very subtle and witty allusions to to the fact that uh, the world in which Tony and his family live is uh, has been degraded. Uh, everyone seems to be doing a drug or two or three, uh, both legal and illegal, in a way to treat themselves for the uh, the psychological abrasiveness of of modern life. Well, what about the opening scene? I mean, uh... well, that's a good point, uh, the opening credit sequence of Tony leaving New York City and driving across the Meadowlands to his suburban home, that area he crosses, the Meadowlands, is, uh, is, has been for thousands of years a, a haven for migrating birds, and, uh, and yet now it's become more or less a, 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 a badly damaged uh, environment. A lot of smokestacks, pollution, and the bodies that Tony Soprano dumps there, too. Well, yes, you do get the sense that this is a place where uh, nature has become a place that's more or less a body dump for the gangsters, where they they go to commit their misdeeds and uh, to hide the remains. Now, there's a there's a point in the show, uh, Jeremiah, where the daughter Meadow is screaming at her at her dad. I'm tired of telling people you work in environmental cleanup as a cover for him being a mobster. So, Meadow, what business is your father in? Actually, um, he's in waste management. Ah, toxic chemicals, medical waste, that sort of thing? Yeah, sort of. Uh, environmental cleanup. So you think the writers are having some fun with this too, I guess, huh? Yeah, they are. All through the series, they, they, uh, they look at uh, this, this issue in a real witty way. For instance, uh, Meadows' roommate at college uh, is from a small town in Oklahoma, and uh, she immediately begins to wig out in, uh, in living in Manhattan. And, uh, you know, eventually she ends up at the uh, psych ward at the uh, local hospital there uh, getting uh, anti-anxiety medication. And yet when she comes back and they ask her what's wrong, uh, she puts it pretty bluntly... I think I miss my ferrets. You gotta snap out of this, Caitlin. Uh, you say some pretty intriguing things about male psychology in your piece. For example, you quote a writer named Paul Shepard as saying that our disregard for the earth has made us estranged from our natural family, changing the way we raise and educate our children, especially boys. That, that th- this makes men who want to destroy other living things in response to their own insecurities. Is that what you think is really wrong with Tony? Well, I think Tony certainly has a love-hate relationship with nature, and that also runs throughout the series, that he clearly loves animals. We see that from the very first episode. And yet he's also uh, a, a creature who resorts to violence at, every, at almost every turn. You're going to help me with these cinch bugs. They're killing my sweet corn. Well, this blue stuff works pretty well, and it's safe in the environment. I tried that. You got any DDT back there? Oh, 
that stuff's legal. It's been banned. Yeah, but you got a little surplus in the back. You go, you look. I'll meet you back there. Look, Mrs. Soprano, you know, if I could do something, I would. Big right? I think that somehow this is analogous to the way uh, one kind of a, a male role model in our culture does function. A philosopher like Paul Shepard would probably go all the way back about 400 years, 1600, to the work of Francis Bacon uh, to say that this is really part of the Western mind from the beginning, that we've had a pathological desire to conquer nature, or in Francis Bacon's term, that we can turn nature into into our harlot and, and, and get from nature what we want. And I think this is the thing that the eco-psychologists say is the broken relationship we have to heal. Well, we're just about out of time here, but i got to ask you one thing before you go. Uh, I understand that the Meadowlands is now in the process of being cleaned up after all these years of being a dumping ground and being riddled with pollution. And since Tony's fired his shrink, I'm wondering if he's going to find his salvation not in therapy, but but perhaps become an environmentalist and then help clean up the Meadowlands. <laughs> well, let's hope so. Uh, it would be great if Tony did that. Jeremiah Creedon is a senior editor at Utney Magazine. Thanks for taking this time with me today. Well, thanks so much for having me. And for this week, that's Living on Earth. Next week, as the Democrats prepare to pick a challenger to George W. Bush, the PAC is starting to draw lines between the president and each other on environmental issues. Join me and a panel of reporters as we question the Democratic hopefuls in a League of Conservation Candidates Forum from Los Angeles. It's Democrats on the Environment, next time on Living on Earth. And remember that between now and then, you can hear us anytime and get the stories behind the news by going to livingonearth.org. And while you're there, you can also take one last chance to win a safari for two to Africa. That's livingonearth.org. We leave you this week spanning the River Rhine. Michael Rusenberg placed microphones on the many structures that cross this famous waterway in Germany. He took the sounds into a studio and manipulated them into a work he calls Cologne Bridges Symphony. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation in cooperation with Harvard University. You can find us at livingonearth.org. Our staff includes Jennifer Chu, Tom Simon, Susan Shepard, Carly Ferguson, Nathan Marcy, and Liz Lambert. Special thanks to Ernie Silver. Our interns are Carolyn Johnson, Julia Keller, Taylor Ferguson, and Mary Beth Conway. Allison Dean composed our themes. Environmental sound art, courtesy of Earth Ear. Our technical director is Al Avery. 
Ingrid Lobet heads our Western Bureau. Diane Toomey is our science editor. Eileen Belinsky is our senior editor. And Chris Ballman is the senior producer of Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood, executive producer. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, supporting the Living on Earth Network, Living on Earth's expanded Internet service. Support also comes from NPR member stations and the Annenberg Foundation, and Toms of Maine, maker of natural care products and creator of the Rivers Awareness Program to preserve the nation's waterways. Information at participating stores or tomsofmaine.com. This is NPR, National Public Radio.